Hi, I'm Nick. I'm an alcoholic. I'm uh, very grateful to be here to talk to you. This is my fourth IDAA meeting. Uh, my first was in Alabama. And um, just looking back at what I was like then um, and how it is today is, is pretty remarkable. The fact that I'm standing up here is really kind of scary, but um, I'm happy to be here. I, um, I grew up in, in Dubuque, Iowa, which is about uh, five hours from here. In, uh, in a large family. I'm the oldest of, of five. Um, both my mother and father are Irish, German, uh, Catholics, and there's a lot of alcoholism in, in both of the families. Um, my mother's father was in AA for 26 years before he died. And so uh, the family was familiar with alcoholism, but not so much with uh, recovery because he sort of kept it separate. But um, that's that's the sort of setting I grew up in, and um, I had a fairly uneventful childhood. My parents didn't drink uh, at all, and um, things were pretty normal, so I thought. And um, I had a normal grade school time, and I, I, I guess in, in, in junior high, I, th- I felt that things started to, to be different for me. I was, I, I was, I guess, described as an agitated kid and um, kind of restless. And one of the things uh, that I noticed uh, was that when I was invited over to my friend's house, um, alcohol that was available there took that feeling away and made me feel a part, um, I guess, the rest of humanity, so to speak. At least it felt to me at the time. I was pretty um, disconnected, so I felt, and um, having that drink of alcohol really erased that feeling. And it was fun. And um, that was a theme uh, through my high school time. In high school, I came from a small junior high school. There was only 14 people in my class. And I went to a high school of um, about 250 or so, and I, I was 88 pounds when I started my freshman year. So I, I couldn't really play football. I went out, but they slaughtered me on the football field. And, uh, and I did that just in an attempt to try to fit in, and, and I, never, I never really could, at least uh, on a physical le- level there. But one thing I knew how to do and could handle, even if, when I was that small, is I could drink. And uh, when I went to high school parties and, and could drink a 12-pack of beer and I was 90 pounds and actually be still standing up, um, I felt like I'd, and other people thought that was pretty cool, and I felt it was pretty cool. So that's the way things started. By the time um, I got to my junior year in high school, I was uh, introduced to drugs. Marijuana was the first drug I took. And... Frankly, it was more accessible to get drugs than it was alcohol in high school for me, so I was more involved with that at the time. That sort of went on, sort of high school parties. Um, nothing that I felt was out of the ordinary from what a lot of the other kids I was around were doing. Until um, the fall of my senior year, I had a friend that went away to college, and he had access to a lot of drugs, and he sent them back to me and uh, to, to sell and use and whatever. In, in two months, I did three-quarters of a sheet of acid, and that's about 70 hits of acid. And um, I don't remember 
anything of December of my senior year at all. Um, but I do know that towards the end of my senior year, um, I was in an intervention at home, and I had to go to treatment. Despite that, I had good grades. Um, I had a 3.8 grade point average. And that was my cover, um, so to speak, for justification to me that I could still use drugs and it was okay was the fact that I got good grades and drug addicts don't have bad grades, so, or so I thought. Obviously, that's not true for standing in this crowd, but that's what I thought at the time. <clears throat> so um, I went to treatment for the first time. I was 18 years old. It was the Persian first Persian Gulf War. And I remember that very clearly, being in treatment and watching that on the news. And uh, I did what I had to do um, to get through that phase um, of getting through treatment. I, I went to the meetings I had to go to. I finished up high school. I did well enough, and I applied to college. And I applied to two colleges, Colorado and Colorado State. And so it was, you know, my geographical cure, I guess. And uh, I went away. To college in Colorado State is where I ended up going. And while I was there, um, I honestly made an effort at first to go to meetings. And, and when I was in those meetings, I, I just couldn't. I mean, everyone was all your age. <laughs> and I was 18. And I, and I, was, not, uh, I was not relating at all uh, to what was going on. And so I, I got into a fraternity instead. And, and, uh, and that... And that's sort of, you know, I, I had the typical fraternity drinking type stuff, uh, or at least so I thought was typical. Probably typical does not involve uh, many altercations with the law, outrunning, trying to outrun police. Um, I ended up at one point um, at a party, um, and I was I was holding onto a marijuana pipe, and the cops showed up, and they shone their flashlight at me, and I and I took off running across town, Fort Collins. And I thought that I had outrun him, so I laid underneath the car in a parking lot. Um, and the next thing I know, I woke up the following morning in a, in a, in a, in a honest to God, a straitjacket and full and four four point restraints in a room uh, with a video camera on me. And um, I was issued a summons to, to show up in court because I was charged with possession of uh, drug paraphernalia. And when I showed up in court, um, good or bad, they didn't. They didn't hear anything about this. Uh, they. They. They're like, well, we don't know why you're here. So get lost or whatever. And I. Like, oh my God! I thought I was going to get in trouble. Uh, so that was one of those lessons. I don't know what the lesson was, other than that I could get away with alcohol and drug use apparently. And so I, I continued on with my uh, drug and alcohol use um, for a period of time. I, I basically used all of my financial aid money that wasn't going towards tuition for alcohol and drugs and. Um, and I ran out of that money, and skiing, of course. I was in Colorado, so I skied you know, every weekend that I could. Um, and I ran out of money, and I had to go home. Um, so I came back to Dubuque, Iowa. Um, when I got back, um, I started work at a hospital because I thought I might be interested in medicine. And I, uh, in April of that year, got my first DUI. And uh, as a consequence of that, I spent Thanksgiving in jail um, of my first uh, semester back at a local school in Dubuque, Flores College. And um, I always say that I did some of my best thinking in jail. And 
I, I, I can't say that that led me to recovery, but, it, but as, as my story um, kind of plays out, there's, there's just a lot of there's a lot of relapse, a lot of um, introduction to recovery. I get into it for a while, and then I fall back out again, and then I have this consequence, and I have to sort of reassess and reevaluate the consequence, and then uh, and then that really didn't make much sense to me. I couldn't relate to what I thought. I couldn't relate to. Uh, people in AA, so I went back out again, and that just kept repeating itself over time. But anyway, that was the first of my major legal consequences. Um, and so um, I, I enrolled in school. I, I averaged um, about 26 credit hours a semester, and I worked 30 hours a week at the hospital. And so I did whatever I could to try to stay out of trouble that way. And um, I really didn't get in much trouble um, in the rest of my undergraduate years, and, and I, I was successful in getting into medical school. Um, in medical school, I also did research, and um, a big it was research and developmental neurobiology. So I, I learned about the, the brain and um, and the intricate architecture of the brain, how genes and environment and drugs interact with the brain and can affect it, and it absolutely fascinated me. And I also had to do, um, as part of that, a lot of dissections and embryos um, research. So I got interested in maybe the possibility of doing neurosurgery. And I left, I left college, so I graduated. I thought I was interested in neurosurgery, and I got into a neurosurgery lab at the University of Iowa. And so I started working there, and that pretty much sold me on, on neurosurgery. And pretty much from that point on, I was beeline. That's what I was going to do. And... Um, Medical school was was a great time for me. It was a it was a it was pretty much a big party. I, I got my second DUI uh, during that time. I spent some more time in jail um, for whatever reason. I got away with that, and I didn't have really any consequences with the medical school, uh, other than just the legal stuff. I just didn't find out about it, and uh, I carried on. My final year of medical school, I matched um, in neurosurgery at the Mayo Clinic. And because I matched in February, I sort of, I was home free, you know. I mean, there's nothing left for me to do uh, academically. So I went away and did a rotation in San Diego um, in outpatient nephrology in a VA clinic. And so I had to show up in the morning and see patients in clinic that had hypertension and Diabetes and things, and then the rest of the day I would spend at the beach, pretty much drinking. Um, I really got into pretty big trouble um, in my drinking at that time. I mean, I, I was to the point where I was drinking daily. Most of my college years and medical school years, I was a weekend binger, drinker, but the weekends kept getting longer. You know, they would start on Friday and set to Sunday, and then they started going Thursday to Monday. And I'm sure this is familiar to many of you that had similar drinking histories in mind. I've heard this story a thousand times, so I don't feel like I'm telling anything different. But that's basically what, what happened with me, and that, and that continued until I had to show up for my first year intern, day of internship. And my first internship rotation was trauma surgery. And... This was before the residency work hours thing, and so it was every other night call or every third night call in-house. And, um, you know, very busy. And I still was drinking because I really couldn't stop, but it was only when I was out of the hospital. So in between having, you know, sleep, severe sleep deprivation 
and drinking on the nights that I was able to uh, at night, I, I, I was basically running out of steam. And by October, I went to, a, I remember this, I went to a Monday night football game. I had like two glasses of beer and I just skipped on a yellow light, turned a corner and I got, I saw the flashing lights behind me. And I'm thinking, this is DUI number three. I knew an Iowa was a felony and I thought it was over. I mean, this is it. This, I just lost, I just lost everything I ever worked for. Um, I, I had to go to jail that night. I spent the night in jail. And um, I called a friend to pick me up uh, that I knew from the University of Iowa, and she did. And uh, I was I was quaking, you know. I mean, I thought this was pretty much the end of my my whole my whole career, everything that I worked for up to that point. And um, I called a friend that my brother knew that was an AA in Washington D.C. And he uh, he basically told me. Um, what I had heard before many times, but now I really had to listen that that there is hope that, uh, that it doesn 't really have to be this way. there is a life without drinking, and I up to that point in time had never really believed it and, and it still took some convincing after this, but that was the first glimpse um, of hope that I had and what really struck me about is that there 's this guy that 's never met me ever only knew me through a, my brother as a friend that called me from Washington, D.C. and when spent three to four hours a night talking on the phone with me uh, before I had to meet with my boss the next day to tell him what had happened, before I had to meet the employee health nurse and doctor to tell me what my consequences of this would be and before I would show up for court. And he would spend all this time just talking to me on the phone telling me that things were going to be okay. And uh, there must be something. At that, at that point, like, there must be something AA, a, a, that, that someone that has no idea who I am is, is calling me and talking to me about this. Um, and, and he's gotten through it and he's happy. Uh, it never struck me before that way. So, so, uh, so now I get to the point where, where the consequences have, have come to a point where I, mean, I really couldn't continue with what I was doing as far as drinking is concerned, but I had to be convinced that there was a better way of life and that um, I could I could think of a life without alcohol. But the truth of the matter is I really didn't. All I had to do was take it one day at a time, and, and that's what I needed to hear. So a couple of stories um, that happened during my residency and during my early treatment period that really made a difference and, and led up to this point. Um, the first is the consequence of the third DUI. What I would do is I'd put on my suit, I'd go across to the Mayo Clinic, go up and see patients all day, then leave the Mayo Clinic, put on my orange jumpsuit and go to jail, and I'd spend the night in jail, get up the next morning, put on my suit, go and see patients. And if there isn't, uh, is the, I can't describe the shame <laughs> of that. It was absolutely terrible. And, um, after I finished that week or so, then I had house arrest. So I'd have to be, um, I'd, I'd go to, I'd go to surgery and then I'd have to be home by six o'clock and blow into a breathalyzer at home and, or else this sort of thing would trigger the cops or whatever or the court people and I could be arrested for being, um, out of compliance with my 
parole or whatever it was called. And uh, so I did that for, for three weeks. And that was like, I, I was tired of the double life. You know, I mean, here I, here I am trying to show one thing on the outside and actually coming home and doing this. And it was just, had taken its toll. Um, the second story is I was a second year resident and I had a patient come in. He was working on a grain elevator and he was drinking on the job. And on the grain elevator was a bunch of scaffolding on the outside of it. And he had fallen off the top of the scaffolding and on the way down it hit in a whole bunch of whole bunch of the boards on the way down and then the thing collapsed on him and it fell on his head and it cracked his head as basilar skull fractures and and and, and but he was still awake he, he had a GC, Glasgow coma skill 15 but his head was cracked and his, and his brain was swollen but he was still awake because his skull had fractured basically and all this had happened because of his drinking and we nursed him through that period and got him through the ICU and we spent he had no money really and no insurance and uh, we had tried to get him into a treatment center but couldn't um, and we were running out of time as far as uh, getting him out of the hospital so we had a talk with the family and said when we release you from the hospital on a Friday on Monday you need to show up at treatment center um, or um, you know, you're really at risk of, of doing this again. And and the next night I was on call, and I had called down to the emergency room, and he was at Glasgow. He had he had, t- had drank in a bottle of wild turkey and fallen down his basement stairs and died. And um, that that feeling, like man, this this is serious. Um, like this this could happen happen to me. And uh, I was sober at the time, but I really was just doing what I had to do to get through the HPSP and, and, and doing it just to get by. And that experience was the first of, of several that have happened through my residency, but one of the ones that was most vivid about the serious consequences of, of alcoholism. A second experience was, um, as we often do, we um, give people grim diagnosis. And, and uh, I had, had a patient that was a 65-year-old woman who I later uh, found out um, was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But she had a mass in her head and presented with a seizure, and, and we did an MRI, and uh, she had a, a glioblastoma. And when I went in to talk to the family and, and told her uh, the diagnosis, she had this um, strange reaction. She, she looked at me, and then she sort of put down her head, and then she looked back up at me and says, I've had a long life. I've had 20 years of AA. I've been happy through these years. If it's my time to go, it's my time to go. And it absolutely floored me. Um, here is this woman who, in most circumstances, are in the in the direst of states and very distressed, was able to accept it um, because of what her recovery had done for her, and that had a profound effect on me. And that's basically the main things. The last thing that, that, that happened is four years ago, I came to an IDAA meeting. And I met um, many of the people that are here staring at me right now. And that um, really made a huge difference. The, the difference it made was that I wasn't convinced that AA was for me and that was for doctors. I figured it maybe it was for people that were outside of AA. And as... My, my biggest problem is arrogance, and um, 
and and lack of humility and and sometimes I think that um, in my training that's part of it. Uh, I mean, it seems like at some points in my training, like I'm taught to be self-reliant, in control, and in power of the situation. But that was the exact opposite of what I was hearing in AA. And when I came to IDAA, I saw doctors that were in AA, and they were doing what they were told, and they were happy, and they were living a good life. And uh, it just struck me. And I was, I was at that point, um, sort of tired of thinking about the prospect of not having another drink again, and and starting to feel like maybe I could be part of this. And that IDAA meeting. Uh, in Alabama, uh, made it made a big difference, made a big impact. So, I came home and I started going to AA and actually listening in the meetings. I would go and not instead of having to have my thing signed, I started to listen to what people were saying. And uh, there's a guy in Rochester, Minnesota, I'm a meagle from Rochester in the room, but Roy, who uh, who basically saved my life. I mean. He asked me, I came in the room, I sat in the corner, I had a stocking cap on. He always tells the story, so I hear it from him, I don't really remember it. But I had a stocking hand and I was sitting in the corner and I was trying to hide the fact that I was, uh, you know, a doctor at all in, 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 in an AA meeting in Rochester. And he, he came, I came up to him and said, like, hey, would you be willing to talk to me after the meeting and help me? And uh, he did. And basically what he told me is that every morning I had to call him, no matter how early, and tell him that I had prayed, got down on my knees and prayed the morning before I went to work, thank God that I got through the day sober, and then try to get to a meeting that day if I could. And over time, after having called him for, I don't know, maybe three or four months, it started to become automatic. I would just get up every morning and pray. Sometimes I'd remember to get down on my knees, sometimes I wouldn't. But the process of just thanking God for having one more sober day and then asking him for help to get through the next was enough for this really thick-skulled neurosurgery resident to get through the program. And I can't say that my program is all that elaborate. It isn't. I just don't have time to get away from the hospital right now. Um, started, I start the day about 5.30 in the morning and I get home, you know, 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night. And so I can't get to many scheduled meetings. I try to go to meetings that are later in between times, try to be creative about getting to them. But what I do do is I try to keep my program very simple and I have a very strong relationship with my sponsor. Um, And my time um, in Rochester was with Roy. And when I left, um, I went to... When I left Rochester to do my fellowship at the National Institutes of Health, that carried over. And the people in IDAA that I knew, Dick McKinley, introduced me to my sponsor in uh, Washington, D.C. And I also reacquainted myself with Dan, the guy that spent all uh, that time on the phone with me, trying to help me through those first few days white-knuckling it. Um, before the meetings, or before uh, before the, I heard about court dates and so on. So... Things sort of came full circle when I got to Washington, D.C., and I was able to go to meetings uh, most of the time uh, on a daily basis and or semi-daily basis, and I got really connected. And um, that was pretty much the highlight and has been the highlight of my career in AA so far the last two years. Uh, and I can't say enough about it. But when I, when I was a kid, believe it or not, I didn't dream about being an alcoholic, a doctor. <laughs> I, I dreamed about having uh, having a life of that I was happy doing what I loved to do, 
And, and that has all happened um, to me in, in a fairly short period of time, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination the path that I intended to take. And all of it has come from the people that I've known in IDAA and Alcoholics Anonymous and, of course, my wife. They've been the biggest source of support for me. Um, in Washington, D.C., I went to the West Side group. And if anyone gives a chance, to, it's an all-men's group. It meets at 8.30 on Saturday morning in Georgetown. And uh, that was the group um, that I went to on a weekly basis if I was in town. And I can tell you that that was a hard thing. I, when I first came, I didn't know anybody except for the people that I had been introduced to on the phone. And just showing up in a new town and trying to get into the AA group there was was hard. And... Um, D.C. is a little bit tougher group of cats than Minnesotans. Um, people are sort of more to themselves, and they have their own business, and they, they do what they do. And, and, so, and so getting familiar with the people there was hard, but it's paid off in droves. Um, at, at, the, at the last uh, meeting in Westside, they asked me to lead, and uh, I was able to share the experience I had, and then they had a, they threw a growing, going away party for Aaron and I that I couldn't believe. I mean, all these people that that showed up um, that I had no idea who they were two years ago, and the and the place was full at this. Uh, it was like at a mansion in in Arlington, and it was just fantastic. And not in my wildest dreams I ever thought something like that would happen just because of people that I knew because I was an alcoholic. I thought it would be for some other reason, but. Um, <laughs> But now, but now, I mean, that was that was one month ago, and and now I'm back um, to Rochester, and uh, and um, I've spent my first month. Uh, I've done 60 neurosurgical operations. They let me off uh, for yesterday to come to this meeting, and uh, and I had forgotten actually that I had volunteered to participate or help at this meeting this year thinking that maybe I'd be moving chairs or something after afterwards, and I didn't realize I had to speak, but um, I'm sorry, sorry that I may have been kind of an off-theme kind of talk, but um, I'm, I'm really grateful uh, that I have this opportunity to be here. Um, I, I want to reach out to the people that are in residency and, and, and have minimal amount of time maybe to get to meetings um, to talk to me to, 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 so I can tell them about what, what I have done. Um, and, and it's basically staying close to your sponsor because oftentimes I can't get to the meetings. I can at least pick up the phone and call some him or if it's not him, some other guys that I know well in AA and get through it that way. I don't necessarily need to be um, in a big meeting. I just need to be connected to the people in AA on a, on a regular basis, and that's that's how I do it. It may not be the best way. I certainly listen in these rooms and I hear about all the AA meetings and all the things that other people are doing, and I... I mean, man, I'm not, I'm not quite there, but I'm, I'm doing what I have to do to stay sober, and that's sometimes all I can do. And um, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm grateful to see uh, people that um, I know here and respect very much, and um, this, is, this is basically what it's all about, you know, keeping things simple, um, playing my part to act out what I'm doing. I, 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 I spent many years thinking about how I could get sober, but very little time uh, walking the walk. And what I found, and there's a, a common saying I used to hear, is that attitude follows action. And I, I never was able to f- change the way I felt just by thinking about how I felt. And, and 
by actually doing what Roy said, saying the prayers every morning, giving him a call and talking to me, to people, um, things, things have really turned around. So thank you for listening to my story and I'm, I'm really grateful. Thanks.